As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm JJ Bull because Joe Devine is ill. That's not why I'm JJ Bull, I just am. <laughs> But Joe Devine isn't here today. Oh dear, he's got ill. He's meant to be on holiday. That's not going to go well for him. But thankfully, we are joined by someone much better. And that is Seb Stafford-Bloor. Yes. Hello, JJ Bull. He's all the way from Germany here today. Live for you. Well, not live, because this is obviously recorded. It's not live. It's no. live for you and you. You're live for me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, also, we're joined by John McKenzie. So. Hello. Hey, John. <laughs> It's good, yeah. Have a nice time, John. Yeah, yeah. We've become ungovernable. Yeah. No Joe Devine to stop us he from can't, talking. Nobody can stop us. Not you, not Steve. Seb, not Steve. Definitely not me. Definitely not Steve. Um, <laughs> so, what did we talk about in today's show? Well, many, many things. Leeds entering a quagmire or marsh. Oh, yes, that's, I see what you did. That's very clever. That's quite good that there. Very clever. That's very good. Since sacking their former manager, we talk about like Leeds, Man United, and um, uh, Ten Hag transitioning the Man United team into something good. We talk about um, our Man City angry enough to win the whole league. Have they been galvanised by things? It's <laughs> uh, good word, galvanised. Uh, yeah, it? I like that, yeah. It's quite yeah. nice to say. It makes me sound smart. And we briefly talk on what comics we read as children. We discuss the US military shooting down UFOs <laughs> over Canadian airspace. We that's did. that's real news stories. <laughs> Everyone laughs. And this is the thing about it, right? It's It's been parodied. It, people aren't laughing at news stories. People laugh at you, though, because you, you love aliens. But this is... It's not aliens, though. <laughs> well, UFOs, they're aliens. not called UFOs anymore. Well, UAPs. What, what does that mean? Um, unidentified, unidentified aerial phenomena. Phenomena. Look, look, at, look, 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 look at the way his eyes dance when he says phenomena. Why it, were they not allowed to be called UFOs? Because um, I think always it's always flying. I don't know, but I assume St- it's to do with stigma. Stigmatizing. Because... <laughs> It's people are ridiculed for talking about these things, but it's a good way to um, if you want to make people stop talking about it, you make them seem like they're an, so an they're idiot. So they're UAPs now, something like that. Oh, I don't know. Unidentified aged pensioners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the good the good news is that the hands or well, this this advanced technology that has been you know maybe found and is being reverse engineered is in the hands of Blink One Eighty Two. So we should all be fine. And then we talked about Fulham, Brentford, and Brighton, and how they have. Done a very good job of being promoted and getting better, improving each day, much like Seb Stafford Bloor, then a bit about VAR. I don't think I don't know if I enjoyed that bit. 
but we did it, <laughs> and it's there. And uh, we also talked about the Bundesliga. Oh yeah, it's not on the list, but no worries. If you, Steve doesn't care about that. Well, we talked a lot about the Bundesliga. It's quite a good bit that I think yeah. you and said did lots of good work, and I wasn't interrupting it like certain other people might. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but there you go. That's what you get. And if you enjoy not being interrupted while you learn about things that are interesting to you, especially football, you should read the Athletic. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, oh yeah, there's a free <laughs> trial and you can read the Athletic for um, free for 30 days, which is pretty nice. You can read all the articles. What's a good one today, Seb? Uh, I haven't read it today, JJ. It's it only got delivered when we were in the office. office. Yeah, this morning, I, yeah. But I also had to catch a very early flight, and so I've had quite a busy morning. You could have a lot of time. picked up on the news agents now? Yeah, I could have done, but it uh, hadn't been delivered in time. That's a shame. I though. read a nice piece by my good pal Ahmed Walid, who wrote He's very good. He is yeah, very good. Yes. I think his tactics pieces are my favourite ones yeah. that I've written anywhere. Yeah, he wrote a piece about how... Uh, Arsenal could have broken down a team like Brentford how are they going to come up because they're going to start coming up against a lot of low blocks so yeah recommend going to read that wow there you go you can do that too for free if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO <laughs> and that is um, that's what we do in the show so it's a lot more sensible in the last few podcasts which is, I think is good oh we talked there's a bit about a moose that I enjoyed and that's <laughs> it and so um, I'll just leave you uh, with Seb Stafford Blower United nil two to Manchester United because they beat them. In fact, they played them twice recently because they had a draw on the Wednesday evening at Old Trafford and then they beat Leeds at Elland Road. Uh, but the difference being that for this game, the two nil, Jesse Marsh wasn't there, was he, John? Where was he? He wasn't there for the other one either. That no, was he not? But this was, I think, interesting because we don't often get the chance to see two teams play in the league consecutive games. So I thought that. Leeds would struggle a little bit more in this game because Eric Ten Hag had had you know, a few days to think about the way that it played out at Old Trafford. Mm. Uh, and in the event, I think Manchester United were much worse. Um, they did try a few different tweaks. Uh, the, the problem is, is that when you play against a team like Leeds, they're very, very good in their first phase of pressure. Manchester United are still struggling to build up through pressure anyway. Uh, and so it led to this situation where... Leeds were able to just sort of keep Manchester United in their own half and restrict them in terms of moving the ball down the field until, I mean, the, the goals came after the 80th minute and at that point yeah. Leeds had generated the better chances because Manchester United were losing the ball in high turnovers and, and Leeds were just breaking that. That's what they're designed to do, right? Win the ball in high turnovers and then generate these dangerous situations where the opposition is in their possession phase so they're spread out and there's lots of space to attack. So yeah, I, I thought this was an interesting one. The difference between this game maybe and the and the game at Old Trafford was that Leeds managed to score two goals uh, to to start things off. So they then got into a situation where they were defending a lead and they just sort of started dropping deeper and deeper to defend that lead as the yeah. game went on. And that just allowed Manchester United to just progress the ball a lot easier. Whereas in this game, it stayed at nil-nil right until the 80th minute. Manchester United weren't able to really generate those dangerous transitions until later on in the game. And yeah, it took a moment from from Luke Shaw, who's just an incredible left-back at the moment, maybe maybe one of the best left-backs in the world. And, and that was it. I thought Ten Hag's changes were quite smart. I thought they adapted really well to the game. I was going to do a video of this afterwards and I realised we'd done loads of Man United stuff recently so maybe he shouldn't do that <laughs> but then so like he, 
had to change it a lot. So like Harry Maguire came in, for example, right? Now, the reasons Ten Hag said before he came in were tactical and physical. So he wants to rotate the squad a little bit, maybe take Varane out a little bit. And Leeds are very physical, so you want to have someone hard in there. But the, the thing he might have been able to bring was the ability to, to play the ball out from the back. But he was awful, wasn't he? Harry Maguire. Yeah. Yeah, and they brought him in because I think Varane struggled in the in the Old Trafford game. Right. Uh, Leeds were, were were sort of directing their Manchester United build up through him uh, and it was causing them problems. And yeah, it, it felt to me like the changes that Eric Ten Hag made, like you say, were sensible. He brought in Harry Maguire who we think of as being a really good progressive passer. Uh, and it makes sense because they can't they're struggling to build up under pressure because they're missing Eriksson and Casemiro, so that's the two players that are really good for that. And that's what they struggled before and it was Fred and McTominay. So without those two and Sabitzer dropping in, you need someone who can then play the ball out from the back, right? Yeah, I think Manchester United have a real issue with midfielders who can take the ball on the turn in those sorts of situations because if you are able to structure your build-up well and you are able to find those passes through into the midfield area and you have a midfielder who can take the ball and turn, you know, you can start causing teams problems. But I don't think Manchester United miss that kind of midfielder, even with Ericsson and Casemiro. I think they are on the lower end of the the ability to do that, which I think affected them. The other change that they made was they brought in Malassia, the the, the left-back who likes to invert. He was inverting and then generating space in towards... Marcus Rashford but again I felt like Manchester United were really clunky in build up really slow they didn't move the ball quickly and I think there's very clear ways that you can cause problems to the the, the, the sort of press that Leeds adopt they simply didn't do that so Leeds, Leeds press in a 4-2-4 shape so they have like a flat line of four players up against the, the opposition's back line and then they have their two midfielders in, in Tyler Adams and, and Weston McKenney a, a US men's national team midfield and they have to sort of shuffle side to side and then you have your fullbacks jumping as well to help out if the ball goes one side or the other uh, and it does it opens up space on opposite on the opposite side opens up space in the fullback area when when the fullbacks jump and I didn't think the Manchester United were quick enough or lateral enough to cause problems for that for that uh, build up so it was a really interesting indication I think of how far Manchester United still have to go because we've seen that they've been really good in certain situations against certain teams, but they do seem to have this problem. We saw it against Brentford right at the beginning of the season, right? We saw it with Brighton at the beginning of the season. Mm. If teams do come out and press them quite high, they don't always have the best solutions to those problems. They don't like it. They don't like it up them. No. Well, you said the word invert there when you said that he likes to invert. So I Googled it. It says put upside down or in the opposite <laughs> position. And I thought that was funny. But then I read what the example was on Google. Invert the moose onto a serving plate. <laughs> How'd that even work? Have you ever inverted moose onto a serving plate, Sam? That's, that's moose as in the dessert rather than the, the Oh, deer. I was going with the... Yeah. You thought it was just an upside-down yes, deer. I, or I think dish. it's funnier if it's a moose. <laughs> <laughs> it's also because of the size. You just couldn't... I mean, even if you didn't invert, the moose wouldn't go onto the plate easily. Is there a plate big enough for a moose? You could make one. Well, what type of manager <laughs> does the lead squad suit, Seb? I don't know. I feel like one of the things that's been missing from Leeds for a while is stability. So uh, mm. this might be a, a John area, but feels like... As with his time at Leipzig, Jesse Marsh never really enabled a side that could attack without creating huge vulnerabilities behind. That was one of the complaints at Leipzig. When he, when he left, a couple of players said things to those effect, to that effect to the, to the German media. That seemed like a problem here as well. Also, with Leeds, it always felt like there was one gear. Like There was an in- a level of intensity, which if they found in a game, they'd be very, very effective. And typically that was against a, like a higher side, a, like a high-powered team. And now I don't really get a sense of what Leeds stand for, what this group of players, what the shape of this group of players is supposed to be. I think that's the best way of putting it. Yeah, I, when I sort of watch them... Because it's a good collection of players. It's not like... Yeah. There's not, there's not a dearth of talent. There's not um, 
there are positional weaknesses. There are areas which could be improved with sort of better recruitment. I that's that's fair. At the same time, if you look at where they are relative to the other teams in the division, something not quite right about that. When you watch them, they seem to. I've seen people say that uh, they're not good, that they're not playing well. But I watch them, I always think, oh, I quite enjoy it because there's lots of stuff going on. There's good technical players. There's good pace. There's good dynamism. Yeah, I but like- yet they don't seem to create real. Well, so, well, and they have no possession, right? And that's why they're so easy to then get at. Well, and also, like, the stability that we've talked about, it should exist. Because, like, if you, if you have a... Say, for the sake of argument, you created a, a midfield tour of McKenney and, and Adams. Yeah. That should work relatively well. It's not perfect, clearly. But if you brought in... What type of manager? Um, well, if we were to go back three months, say someone like Unai Emery, that would be quite interesting at Leeds. Maybe not as exciting as it could be. But in terms of how you harness the kind of the the attributes available, that would have been quite a nice fit. If you slow it down, maybe. But then, <coughs> if they've gone for this Red Bull approach, that was a very evil cough. If you have um, the managers linked with them, who? They, they, come on, John, tell us what's going on. I mean, on. the manager search this has seems been, to change every hour. Yeah, so that, it's that's been the ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this boils down to the fact that it seems as though there's a number of competing factions behind Leeds at the moment. So on the one hand, you've got Victor Orta, who's the director of football. Yeah. You've got Andrea Radrizzani, who's a current owner. And then you have a an ownership group, whatever they're called, made up of people who back the San Francisco 49ers, who have a minor- minority shareholder at the moment. They are at some point, it seems, going to become the majority shareholders. So I think a lot of what's going on at the moment is is there, is there them having their say as well. And so what it's ended up with is, is as you were talking about before, maybe a bit of a lack of identity. I felt like they went for the the Jesse Marsh approach, the the Red Bull approach, and it hasn't, for whatever reason, worked out. But you then look at the squad, and there's there's players who obviously were managed by Jesse Marsh previously, and he wanted to bring those in because he felt that if he brought those players in, then then it would solve some of the systemic issues that we have. But then you've got Victor Orta, who I think likes to uh, almost gamify director of football, the director of football job, and he likes to find these talents so Willie Nonto is a great example of that right you buy someone in on the cheap they have a really big ceiling and 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 you make a lot of money out of them and I think you know there's players like that he's brought in so someone like Jorginho Ruter um, who was brought in as a record signing is one of those players where he said oh this guy could get big no one's really after him so let's try and get him because we can get him and then yeah I think that you also sort of have that that with the 49ers you have that US men's national team angle as well so we have players like Brendan Aronson and then Tyler Adams and and Weston McKennedy McKenney and you bring them all together and and as you say it's a bit of a hodgepodge of different uh, different influences and the big problem for Leeds this season is that they sort of they gambled on going for the Red Bull approach it hasn't worked out and then rather than bringing in another Red Bull manager they've decided that approach isn't going to work for whatever reason probably because those three factions don't agree on that being the best approach anyway and now we have a situation where it's just you've got a squad uh, of mismatched players perhaps with a load of managers who they first went after managers who were in work, who were doing quite well in Europe. So player, uh, managers like uh, Andoni Iraola, Rio Vallecano, a really exciting player, Arnie Slot uh, at Feyenoord in the, the Netherlands. And, and these guys obviously looked at that job and were, were like, no, you know what? Possibility of going down. I don't want a Premier League job that much. I like Iraola has a chance of getting into European football with a with a club that quite frankly should be nowhere near European football. Arnie Slot is like has a chance of silverware this this season. These managers have been like, no, I'm not going to risk that. And so what they've done is they've worked their way through a massive list of managers who are already in jobs, been turned down by all of them, and now they're at this situation where they're like, we just have to get someone in. Got to get someone, yeah, yeah. And so it- they've gone through um, Alfred Schroeder, who was yeah. a. Um, was at Ajax and no, he's quite highly rated after Schroeder, and he's meant to play a lovely kind of football. Yet you're telling me this morning that he's 
<laughs> annoyed everyone at Ajax. Yeah, so, I mean, this has been quite controversial because it, 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 the news dropped yesterday that he was at Elland Road visiting with a view to maybe take the job. Then the fan backlash was incredible because I think there's a lot, there's a lot of Dutch Leeds fans and on social media they, they started saying, you know, this guy had a nightmare at Ajax, came into a team that's, you know, expected to win the league every season. And has that come into the actual fan base in the ground and that's changed? Well, I don't think it's in the ground, but I think that they're hyper aware of what's going on in terms of on social media. So, for example, the Square Ball, which is one of the biggest Leeds, well, it's the the biggest Leeds fan media outlet. They ran a a (laughs) poll saying, would you rather have the current manager who's which is michael scabala who's uh was the assistant of jesse marsh who's now the interim coach or would you rather have uh, alfred schroeder and yeah the, the fans were like undeniably in favor of of just having michael scabala well um, john was so. also very excited this morning said but the prospect that steven gerrard might be uh, an option <laughs> he's it's good, kind of he? like i mean in the abstract there's kind of a an example of weird, non-joined-up thinking, no. When John was talking about Red Bull, it kind of reminds me of something that which isn't just a Leeds issue or any one particular club, because it, it seems to exist all over the world. When people see something or did see something happening at Red Bull, it got the kind of the automatic check. That's a good thing, because it's happening at Red Bull, and that must be very, very easy to implement at my club. So Jesse Marsh being an example, Jesse Marsh's reputation was built at RB Salzburg, with a, a very young team, um, a, a team that played exciting football, but a team that was also spearheaded by a young Erling Haaland. Everyone remembers that kind of that run through the, the Champions League, which you know made Haaland's name at that at that point. But then people don't sort of look at right what went wrong at Leipzig. Why didn't he, having moved through the system, why didn't he work as a first uh, as a, as a head coach in the Bundesliga? Also. Is our recruitment good enough to replicate what a, what a quote unquote Red Bull coach needs to achieve things? Well, so one of the thing of Red Bull teams is that they tend to have a lot of the money, and then therefore they can dominate. Like Salzburg would dominate the Austrian league. So well, that's one of the factors, but there, there's several, and it feels like people don't pay enough attention to all of them. So, yeah. okay, so your if you compare Leeds and RB Leipzig at their kind of Nagelsmann peak, okay, well you've got Leimer in there, you've got Sabitzer in there, you've got Timo Werner playing there. Like you've got a really, really good, strong collection of players who probably in a kind of a Bundesliga ranking would be third, fourth best in the league, which doesn't really fit where Leeds United are at the moment or where their kind of ceiling is because of their financial restraints. And so it's frustrating because you, you have all these theories about what you know, could work at your club and what might be a good idea and where, where the efficiencies lie in the market. But unless all these things work well, like if, if it's like, um, you know, at school when, when you did the kind of the, you had that little sort of the, the exercise which showed you how electric current worked. And if you broke the circuit, nothing happened. It's like that, isn't it? If your recruitment doesn't feed into your coaching and, and you're not providing a coach with the right kind of players that you need in the right circumstance, within the right place in the hierarchy in, in, a, in a competition, in a, in a domestic league, it's not going to work as well as it did in Leipzig or Salzburg well, or wherever else. Do you know who is working very well? Eric Ten Hag. He is. United have snuck into a little bit of a title race, haven't they? Do you think they're good for it? Is that what's actually <laughs> happening? Uh, I don't think so. I mm. think there's still enough weaknesses in their game that they're not going to be consistent enough. And I think this is where the controversy will often come from when, when you're talking about how good Manchester United are or not. 
obviously there's games where they're going to blow opponents away. When there's certain uh, games where they can come up against opponents who are going to be tactically suited to them, they're going to be they're going to be great. We saw that. We've seen that in games where they come up against the top six, right? Because because they still have the ability to be quite good in these transitional moments, uh, and they can defend well. Uh, they can absorb pressure and then generate these these dangerous um, counterattacking moments. That's what does for Manchester City a lot of the time, right? And and that's what Manchester United did against Man City in the most recent game. The example of those two Leeds games, I think shows the blueprint of how you can cause this Manchester United team problems. Now, that doesn't mean to say that every team is going to come out now and press them high, but it does give you a, a good example of, of how you can sort of slow them down, stop them from progressing and make them much less much less dangerous. Um, so I, I do think they've got a long way to go yet. But they, they as I said before, they, they're still working with a very sort of pared down squad. Yeah, um, and they had to change a lot during that game to get to get the result out of it. Like by the end of it, you had Rashford playing through the top with Veghorst playing as a 10 behind him, like a Fellaini sort of role. But you pick on uh, Lissandro Martinez to help out with defending. He did well when he came on. I thought yeah. he's great. He's a really yeah. good player. And you see, I mean, I would say that Harry Maguire was awful earlier, which sounds harsh, but genuinely, he kept giving the ball almost every single time he had it. It was slow. He's like a. If you had like a foosball character that was animated in the night, like hit by lightning, came to life, that's what he was like. Slow to turn, very wooden. Just Can you imagine being Harry Maguire at the moment of oh, last year? Like, not because not like, not in the sense of, oh, I've had a bad game, but every touch. Like, it's got to be very, very difficult for Harry Maguire. Like, every time he receives the ball, every time he's got a header to win or a tackle to make, for him not to think about the level of scrutiny that he's under. For sure. It's and the game, no doubt. Well, everyone's saying bad things about him. I mean, there's this idiot me talking about him as though he's not good at football. He's an international footballer. He knows what he's doing. He was quite interesting in this post-match because he said, uh, like, he knows that there's four international defenders in the team, so two of them aren't going to get in the game. He's very level-headed about it, pointed out that he is the captain of the, the club. I just think this game has maybe showed that there are so many deficiencies to his game that it seems very much that I don't know how he'd be able to adapt to it because the, the speed of both thought mm, and yeah. uh, actual literal speed <laughs> are slow in those situations, which just doesn't suit what they're going to do. So I don't know what happens with him. He now. looked very clumsy at times, didn't he? And very casual too. But I think well, the, the interesting thing for me about um, Harry Maguire is that he's traditionally played as a left, well, a right, right-footed, left-sided centre-back. Yeah. And there's been a lot of discussion about how when you play him on the right, and I think Eric Ten Hag is going to be the sort of manager who is going to want to have a strong-sided f- f- centre-back, so a, a right-footed centre-back on the right side and a left-footed centre-back on the left side. So he's been playing Maguire over on the right, but you can see from the way that he plays that he's just so much less comfortable. He ends up on that left side often when yeah, it's like really yeah, exactly. busy, chaotic moments. Yeah, I, I noticed I that. Yeah. And I think that's because because of his body shape when he's when he's playing passes and when he's addressing the ball he's for whatever reason I mean there's people talking about his biomechanics I don't know anything about that but for whatever reason he he fronts up far too straight on the right hand side which is fine when you're playing on the left because your your passing angle is very different whereas on the right you obviously have a completely different set of passing angles and we know that Harry Maguire is a really good progressive passer but he just hasn't been able to do it on the right hand side so I do think that raises big questions about how Eric Ten Hag is going to want to fit him on that team if he's not going to play him on the left hand side and I guess you know you have a you have a player like Lisandro Martinez you're not going to force him yeah. out of the team anytime soon but also like even yesterday when Martinez didn't start out it was he, he you know we had um, Maguire on the right hand side rather than the left so there's, there's clearly something about Maguire that Eric Ten Hag means that he doesn't want to play him on that left hand side. Do you think throughout most of his Man United career it's been a little bit of a victim of not having that central passing option in midfield like that deep one like if you put in for instance at any point in the last sort of three or four years you put kind of someone like Marcelo Brozovic in there ahead of, ahead of someone like Maguire that's a kind of a safe haven for possession and it's not going to cure his deficiencies and flaws. 
it's going to disguise them a little bit and make it a little bit easier. I think that that is the sort of player that Manchester United yeah. need, right? The part of the issue is is that they went for a defensive midfielder in Casemiro, yep. who isn't actually particularly great in terms of that in terms of that in possession play, especially under pressure. When he was at Real Madrid, often you would see Casemiro just being moved into into a more advanced role in, in build-up possession because you have players like Kroos and Modric who can drop in and do the more technical stuff. And I think at the moment, Manchester United really lacking that sort of... Obviously, they're not going to go for a Brozovic-type play because they've gone for Casemiro. So he's going to be the, the team now. Yeah, so, yeah. so you have to have someone who is going to play as an eight who can drop in is really good. Some, someone like Bernardo Silva, we saw him doing that for Man City. Michael Carrick from the previous generation, that yeah. player, like he was... Yeah, so you, you have an eight who drops yeah. in, helps out, and 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 that gives you a little bit more stability and build up. That was what they were missing, I think. Well, yesterday. speaking of Michael Carrick, he played, played for West Ham, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he Am did. I mad? Yeah, there we go. Oh, that was almost a smooth segue into West Ham Chelsea. You panicked. You should have just gone with it. I just couldn't remember if it was yourself. West Ham. He went West Ham, Spurs, and United. It's because he's yeah, he's from is he he's from the northeast. He's Middlesbrough. Yeah. He's Newcastle. Which is he's um, anyway. yeah, he's a Geordie, I think, but he's also well, he's Middlesbrough manager now. No. Mm. Yeah. Yes, he's doing very well, yes. But West Ham, well, Chelsea aren't doing very well. Maybe they need a Michael Carrick. Graham Potter's not having the best of times there. We can come to the refing stuff afterwards. But this is West Ham United 1, Chelsea 1. Now, I thought the interesting thing about this one for me is that West Ham are really good against good teams because they can sit back and hit them on the break, John. But they're struggling to, they struggle against bad teams because then they try and play like mm. a good team. Yeah, this is the story of, I think, David Moyes's career arc at West Ham right he came in made them quite solid uh, they, they they started doing well enough to be able to you know be at the bottom of that of that European section of the of the table and then the step the next step was like how do you then as you say go from being a team who are able to sort of sit deep hit hit teams directly have really exciting attackers so someone like Mikel Antonio is like a is like one of the one of the OG sort of hold up players who can who, who can cause opposition's problems and you get a huge amount of upside from that right because you don't need to commit as many players forward if you know that you have that out ball play the ball to him he can hold it up bring other players into the game but the problem is, as you've said, is that you come up against teams who just refuse to be played directly against. Uh, and so they'll say, right, you have the ball, possess it, we'll sit deep, and now you have to break us down. It's, it's the age-old story, right, of teams who get so good that teams are like, fine, we're, we're happy to happy take a draw, maybe nick one on the break. And I don't think David Moyes has ever really been able to move from that sort of more transitional style to a more possession-based style. And um, so, yeah, like you say, in games like this, you can see them getting a, a certain amount of upside. But then against teams around them at the moment at the bottom of the table, they're not quite so dangerous as you might want them to be. How many of these results does Graham Potter get before they do start thinking about because we know yeah. we know the idea is that they want some sort of longevity and Chelsea managers come and go and you want to build a project but how long does it get said? It's impossible to say because we're judging it upon like but the you have to of, say because no, I, I don't have to at all like I, I'm not here very often I definitely it's one of the privileges of like being a periodic visitor to the, to the office like I can dodge questions like that and say that like the temptation is to kind of apply Abramovich logic to this which does not exist anymore also I feel like Todd Bowley and the other decision makers at Chelsea have a kind of a personal investment in this because <laughs> they got rid of a European Cup winning coach to do this. Okay, so uh, it, it's like that that line in the thick of it where like if we get rid of you now, it's our fault. If we get rid of you in six months' time, it's yours. And that's kind of the same here. And I I don't think Chelsea were bad here. It's just that Chelsea have no chemistry, and nor should they because like that's where's it going to come yeah. from? Like all all they do at the moment is all of their good moments come from like basic. It's almost like watching a like a uh, like 
people play in the playground because it's it's just combination football it's not like there's no tactical shape there's no system based anything it's just this one good player is going to do another thing in concert with this other good player that's the goal if you look at it it's a really really good run it's a great board lovely disguise in it lovely finish um it's an underrated finish actually i think it's a really really nice bit of bit of Joe felix yeah he's nice very good isn't he? and that's what like if you think back over the last let's say probably since that that Fulham game in which he got sent off where Chelsea didn't play too badly and actually they were pretty good until the red card and there were these moments where in, in sort of sort of five, ten second bursts they play quite nice looking football you think oh it's clicking it's not clicking it's just you have like good players who do things yeah. spontaneously really well to, to a really high standard but the passing was so slow in this game it was boring because the passing time. was slow it's just like it's unavoidable like if you want to if you want to spend that much money and you, you want to bring in that sort of volume of, of, of new player with no prior experience with, with anybody else that they're, they're starting alongside. And if you want to get rid of the tenants of this this team from a previous generation, Kante, Kovacic, Mount wasn't playing. Like there's no centre forward. Harvard's is not a centre forward. And I know they're trying very, very hard to make him into one. He's not a centre forward. He's a, he's a false nine at best. He's probably a number 10. Could play as a wide forward. Like there's a lot that's missing. The defence is a problem. You've got like, John spoke about Mikel Antonio. So, can you imagine being Badishili and thinking, right, well, I'm new to this league and I'm kind of finding my way and, and then you have to play against him? What a nightmare. Like, because you, you, it's not something, it's not a, the kind of challenge that you find elsewhere in European football, really. Michel Antonio is kind of entirely unique even within the context of English football. You don't, there's not another one of him. Chelsea are facing all of these challenges at the same time, trying to kind of develop some familiarity on, on, on the fly. It's just, it's going to take time. And if you blame Potter for that, then you don't really know what you're doing as a kind of an ownership group. Well, they, they do say... So Dan Sheldon wrote in The Athletic, it's out uh, on Monday. It's out. The Athletic's out. Is, the the, new, is it gone to the printers? The new episode's been, out, yeah. Like the, the, the trucks have come Hot and picked it up. Press, and, yeah. and and that's what that rumbling was this morning. When we were in the office and I said, John, I can barely hear you from this side of the office. It was the printing press in the basement. The, were, it was that. They were yeah. delivering The Athletic. Yeah. That's what they were doing. Yeah. Did you ever used to get like a comic on a Saturday morning from the news agents? Yeah. What, yeah, did, yeah, what did yeah, you get? Got um, Well, I got the Beano. It didn't get delivered independently. It came with a, a newspaper that my mother read. Yeah. I can't remember which one, but um, I got that. Also, I used to get um, Roy of the Rovers delivered, which is kind of fun. Uh, Steve is writing Sonic the Comic. And I would make fun of that, but I used to buy Sonic the Conic yeah. every week. No which way. which yeah. which football? That's, I got was that Steve then. It was. Who yeah. knew way me? Me too. <laughs> oh, we're doing accents again. Aren't we? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I used to get also shoot or match. I can't remember which one it was. It was the one match. where it was the one where like this is a to, this is a difficult conversation. Shoot or match? I think definitely match. But everyone who's a football lad says shoot. Well, I can't remember I which ma- one's I which. I got, match. I got the one where like you'd be able to see all the team lineups from all yeah, um, yeah, all yeah, yeah. four divisions in the middle. Like, you and had and that at the beginning of the section, season, they would give you a poster, and then you'd be able and you'd to stick all of the yeah, yeah, and you could move the them one. around. So yeah. I can't remember whether that was I think that was match. That was I think that was match. Well, anyway, the latest episode of Match magazine says that Chelsea board are firmly behind Potter. and they're going to um, stay the same. And can, th- it's such good information from Match that we published in the Athletic <laughs> as well. Can I give you my take on, on Chelsea? Yeah. So we we talked a lot about how Graham Potter's upside comes from him being really flexible and, and having all of these sorts of tweaks that he can do in games to get the most out of players, which I guess at Brighton didn't have the same talent level that they had at Chelsea. And that was how he started at 
Chelsea. He started off doing some of these more crazy things. We saw Raheem Sterling as a situational wing-back, and we saw Mason Mount playing every position under the sun. But it feels to me now that we just get, what we get with Chelsea is a 4-2-3-1, bog-standard, everyone in the correct positions, with just elite talent across the board now. And I think that it will be fine. And I think the diff- what's going to change here isn't going to be that Graham Potter's going to do some kind of magic tactical s- switch or anything. It's just going to be these players are going to get more familiar playing with one another. And it's, it's, it feels to me very sort of standard Chelsea 2000s football approach. But when you've got the players that they've got, it probably will work out. It's hard to analyse it, isn't it? Yeah. Tactically, because it's yeah. nothing to look There's at. Nothing, it's nothing yeah. to look at at yeah. all. It's, it's very sort of like solid, solid. We've got really good players. Just rely on those players being able to do, as you said, Enzo Fernandez, two Joao Felix and goal. And then that's it. That's all you need to do, right? And then hold on. But there's also no harm in it. Like, so what? Like, uh, say, say Graham Potter loses the next five games in a row. They're not going to get relegated. They're also probably not going to finish in the European places. They, they look too far behind. Maybe they might sneak a, a Conference League or a Europa League. They're not going to win a trophy. They're not going to win the Champions League. And so you have a kind of a grace period, right? Because if you, if you look at the demographics of the players that have been brought in, they're all of a kind of a similar type. They're before the peak of their careers and they're developing. So the idea in my mind is you cluster them all together, they, you allow them to mature at the same time, but you also surely have to factor in what's happening now, which is that it's going to be a little bit of a write-off. You're going to have... Chelsea, I, I, if I, for the sake of prediction, I'd say like in the next four months, they'll play some bad football, but they'll also score some of the goals of the season in, in the process. And it will mean nothing because it won't sort of constitute good results or anything like that. But then that's part of the process. And you go into the summer... And then you can have the summer together and then you can have an idea of, at the moment, who's actually in, not just the first 11, who's actually in the matchday squad? Because that's quite a difficult question to answer. Like if you look at the difficulty around the European squad and who had to be, who had to be left out, players are going to have to be sold. Like players who, um, there are players there at the moment who particularly doesn't really think have a long-term future there, but they're kind of milling around as a sort of, you know, a, a leftover from the previous regime. That's really difficult to deal with. You usually have a bit of a, not purge, but a little bit of a filter. One day a year you get to kill them you just get to Yeah, but instead of killing, it's the transfer market. You just to, to, to yeah. sell them to West Ham or to, you know, to Galatasaray or whatever, right? So you need to have that process too because that's part of this. Like we talked a bit about Man United. Man United have had a little bit of that. Like, you know, Ronaldo's gone and that was a problem. And now yeah, Eric Ten Hag has a, has a tendency to do that, the clubs yeah. that he's at as well. He, he has a very firm idea by the end of his first season who he needs and who he doesn't and he moves pe- people on who he doesn't need. And, and who, who, he, who isn't wanted is just as important. Like, look at Arsenal, right? Like, nothing happens without those battles with Ozil and Aubameyang in the beginning. Like, without... And also the sort of the... The, the players under the radar who have kind of moved on as well. Like you need to do that bit before you start worrying about fifty million pound player there, 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 there. You know that's that's uh, an equal part. Of it. The interesting thing about this is that this is very much what it looked like under Thomas Tuchel, right? That's mm. what they 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 played a three a three four three pretty much the whole time, and it was always like oh he's sorted out the defence, he's made them solid, and then we will see at some point him having that effect on the front three and and them becoming more dangerous and it just never really happened and I guess I wonder whether or not the same will happen here that you just get Potter sort of playing very solid football and then it just never really happening and then do we go through that cycle again like what what's it going to take for them to then go beyond solid football to then being actually tactically interesting which I think you have to be at the at, if you're going to challenge at the very highest level right a striker <laughs> need a striker. Definitely need a striker. We've got, we've got Lukaku, so maybe yeah. they'll bring Lukaku back in the summer. Well, I've learned so much from this chat that it's time for a break, according to the script. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Oh, and we're back from the break. Uh, now we're going to talk about U.S. military 2, UFOs nil. They shot down two. Well, that's what you did. I'm so excited about this. It it's really fun. made your weekend. Yeah, it was fun. Anyway, uh, Manchester City 3, Aston Villa 1. I thought they were very good in the first half, Man City. Is this some sort of galvanising from all the off-pitch stuff that's happened last week? Yeah, I, I think Pep knew what he was doing because uh, he's... In the, in the days after that press conference when he talked about how victimised City have been, how he said that the world has made up their mind about whether the club are guilty of what they've been accused of by the Premier League. You've seen a response from the Manchester City fans on social media. It's been a lot of chatter. And then in the stadium, there was a banner in support of, I think, the lawyer who's been appointed to fight their case. That Panic. was one of the most surreal moments in the Premier League, I think. That was very, very strange. But um, yeah, and so what he's built is this thing that every Premier League manager in the history of the Premier League ever has tried to create, which is that everybody hates us, everybody's against us, it's all unfair, and therefore we've got something to rage against. And that is not a new thing. Like, have a conversation with any fan of any club, probably in the world, and you'll find a, yeah, well, you know, we're the ones that everyone dislikes, and and we've got the thing to to rally against, and that's very energising. And the thing is, it's not done because it works. And this was a... This is a, a much better performance than City gave against Tottenham. They were awful at, at Spurs a week ago. This is far better. I think they've got a few problems with personnel. Like, Holland is obviously not himself, and that's causing a bit of an issue. Um, and Ruben Diaz, I think, went off in the middle of this game. He went off b- because of the yellow card, but um, got it a little bit vague about the justifications behind that. If City can use this to put some some wind in their sails, fine. Because, you know, what else is Guardiola going to do in this situation? And also... Like I think they've their season to date, given that given the conversation about Holland and the records he might have broken and his performance and his and, and things like oh, he's broken fancy football. Like, isn't it strange that this is not a vintage city team? This is like they're they're kind of underwhelming. They still look like themselves in, in moments, but if you look at the fixture list and the, the games that they've lost and you know, losing to this Spurs team, losing to Brentford before you know the, the, the World Cup started, they're not awful sides. Of course not. It's just that City should have too much power. And yet somehow, even with the kind of the monster boy forward, they don't. And so something's a, something's askew. I don't know what it is. Well, I thought the monster boy would make them just much, much better. But I mean, they do things in a slightly different way. I think what we saw in this game was utter control. Like from start to finish, the very match. it should have been about six nil. I, th- I think of it as a six nil. One of the th- one of the things he did in this game was uh, play. Well, he didn't play Bernardo Silva at left back. What did he do with him instead? John? Yeah, he used him as a centre. So Man City have been in a system where they play a four three three or whatever you want to call it. And what they do is they invert one of their fullbacks so that you have a double. They put him upside down. They stick him upside down on a plate with a with a deer, a big elk. Yeah. <laughs> we end up with a back three. 
And a double pivot and then and five moose. players forward and a, and a moose that you don't know what to do with, yeah. yeah. What they did in this game was that rather than having the fullback invert, they just started off with Upside the down. player already inverted. So they had Bernardo Silva playing as a central midfielder Upside and then down. dropping out <laughs> dropping out the right way up <laughs> into the left-back position. Um, in, and where was the moose? In, the, the moose was left at home. Oh. So this is why it was a bit, a bit of an interesting one. So there's all kinds of reasons why this could be the case. One of them, you've talked about it before, this doesn't feel like a vintage Man City seat, no. team, but then you look at the squad and it's like it's bereft of players in certain positions. So we all know about the left-back position, um, you know, that there's been various issues in that spot, spot for like half a decade now. Um, mm. They had Joao Cancelo, he got annoyed and moved on. And they didn't see fit to replace him with anyone. They've got Sergi Gomez, who it seems as though wasn't the name that jumped off the uh, the, the, the sort of yeah. the, the shortlist. Really, was he? Like and, someone and, with a reputation, but not. Yeah, know. and again, he's not been trusted, right? And so, and then they've got Rico Lewis, who's probably more of a right-sided yeah. player. They tried him as a sort of inverting fullback from the left, and now they've just gone to rather than even having that fullback in the build-up phase, because a lot of what... I mean, Arsenal are a good example of that. They they invert their fullbacks, but they generally start off with a flat-back four in build-up phase, right? And then and Zinchenko goes inside. Man City now don't even bother doing that. They just start off with a straight three in the in the lowest phase of build-up and have their two... Uh, the, the fullback already inverted. So, yeah, they're, they're doing things differently. But, yeah, it raises questions about what the what the overall squad looks like because, you know, they've got old players. You know, you've got Mares, you've got Kevin De Bruyne, you've got Ilkay Gundogan. These are all obviously great elite footballers they're all getting on a little bit and um they've on top of that changed the system to have a, a, a non-false nine well uh, this is relevant so, off yeah. the back of the uh, ufo intro because of course so this is to do with quantum physics and the <laughs> idea that particles can exist in multiple You're places the at wave once. functions collapsed well you have <laughs> you have a left back who is both a left back and a central midfielder and a false nine mm. and a central midfielder and a center back at the same time it's basically if you if you observe them in different phases, yeah. they look completely different. Sometimes it looks like a photon. Sometimes it looks like a wave. It's, it's, it's it just operates on a level we can't understand. Yeah, perhaps exactly. through more through meditation. This is why I think there's a lot of meditation <laughs> stuff about this as well. Um, anyway, I've grown tired of Man City, and now <laughs> I wish to talk about the newly promoted teams in the league. Um, Brentford, Fulham, and Brighton. Not all of them are obviously newly promoted. Brentford been here for a while, but they were very, very, very good against Arsenal. Brentford. In fact, I think probably maybe have won. But what I want to know is how come these newly promoted teams are doing so well nowadays? Because you get teams like Brighton who are now pushing for a Champions League place. Brentford conceivably could do the similar thing. Fulham very good as now. Do anything different to what previous teams used to do? Yeah, it's. I mean, I think it's largely just like off-field stuff, right? These these teams now have sensible visions about the way that they're going to play. Um, I think they have sensible ideas about how they can play uh, and they enact those ideas. So when you talk about all three of those teams, Brentford, Fulham and Brighton, you can say, how do these teams play? And I think most people would have a, a decent sense of, of what that is because they have that identity, which is, is going to be visible in all the games that they play. That's part part and parcel of it. It's just you have the right idea, you have the manager who can enact that idea, you bring in the players who can enact that on the pitch and it, these three teams now you know they're pushing the, for the European places right so they're, they're all in sort of 6th, 7th, 8th position Fulham's a good example aren't they because last time they come up they spent about £8 billion on <laughs> like right backs who were 40 years old and now they've done it very wisely what's the difference Seb? I think they're better coached by the way just to clarify we mean newly promoting in the sense of like in this sort of epoch not 
all these teams came up. I think they got it. You never know, like, with the internet. You can't be too careful. Got to be careful with the internet. (laughs) Um, I think think there's there's another general point to add in here, which is that, like... Oh, I'm sorry. You moved on too quickly. Like, uh, you know, Joe Devine would have, you know... Yeah, he would have slapped me down at this point, but you've been very accommodating. I don't care. Okay, right. So... (laughs) With the Premier League's growth has come like two things. Firstly, like um, greater wealth, obviously for everybody, which means that clubs with the visions that, that John's talked about now have the purchasing power to kind of actualize their philosophies and, uh, and their theories. So you're able to compete with European clubs who previously would have been like far out of reach. You can, if you're a, a Fulham, you can snatch a player away from somewhere like RB Leipzig. The other thing is also, if you think about the prospect of the Premier League for a player like a young 22 23 year old player if you're saying forget brighton because it's a little bit of an anomaly they're doing so well and they're so well sort of managed as an organization but if you're a kind of if you're a club in the if you're of interest to a club in the the lower half then that is still a really good deal firstly you know the wages on offer are going to be very very competitive probably better than you'd find anywhere else regardless of where that team is playing in the league where where they're, they're finishing secondly the platform is massive so if I'm a kind of if I'm someone who has made my name in Liga, for instance, and I'm 22, 23 years old, I will go somewhere like to a Fulham or a Crystal Palace because I know that even though I'm not playing for Man United or a Man City or Chelsea or Arsenal, I know that the platform is so big that my reputation is going to have the same kind of gains as it would do previously if I was playing for one of those clubs. And so the all-round package is just incredibly attractive. It allows clubs to recruit from a, a higher shelf than they otherwise would have done so, not just in price, but in terms of quality. So like instead of like a, a Karamatoma going to a side and, and spending most of his first sort of five years on the bench or as a sort of a, a bit part role player, like he comes in and he's able to change the conversation around here within the space of really three months. Like if you go back to the beginning of the season, he was an interesting name and he he crops up in a few sort of preseason previews. Now, like if you if you were to fast forward in the summer, there isn't a club in the country that wouldn't say, I want him and I'm happy if my club pays forty, fifteen billion pounds for him. That's the power of the platform. It's obviously his performance too and the kind of the the fun backstory about his thesis about dribbling and, and that kind of stuff and you know, he's he's played ever so well. But that applies to so many other players too. Like it's how, for instance, um Moses Casado goes from being like a little bit of a fun story because his agenting situation was previously very vague when he was in South America and he was of interest to all these clubs that couldn't buy him because nobody really knew who represented him to, yes, my club should spend £80 million on him right now in January because he's what we need for the Premier League title. But that's proof of good scouting and recruitment because then there's nothing to stop other teams doing that, sending them out on low and then putting them into their own first team. And for example, Nottingham Forest have spent all their money on loads of players. Like, is what they've done smart? Yeah, I think that there's a big difference between the way that those teams are approaching things and the way that, that a team like Brighton... We've talked about Brighton in the past. Brighton very smart insofar as they they pick players up before their value increases because they've moved somewhere big. And they then loan them out to that stepping stone team so that when they succeed or, or fail, that Brighton are in the place then to just bring them straight in and have picked up a player who is obviously available for cheaper than they would have been had they made that step up. Uh, and I think that's that's important. But again, Fulham have done similar things. Fulham this time around, I think, have they've kept largely the, the core of players they had in the championship. Uh, and they have brought in players like Joao Polina, who they got for £20 million pounds, uh, and was a much-needed, I think, piece in that puzzle. And they've, he's, they've put he's him in. Been and, he's been absolutely brilliant. Like well, he's, as a, he's the best one-on-one tackler I've seen 
for a really long time in that kind of old school 90s way it's just he just like when he, when he when he wins the ball it makes a sound when he clatters into somebody it's like he's he's uh he's terrific there's something about also um riding momentum and going on an upward trajectory when you when you get promoted like leeds when they come up under bielsa were able to add very few players because bielsa doesn't like to buy big individuals i don't know but then you saw jesse marsh signed a lot I think it is worth saying that, that, you know, I think Fulham are on that trajectory, right? The momentum one. And the big question is going to be for them in the summer. How do they make the next step? Whereas with Brighton and Brentford now, what, you, what you're seeing then, Bright, Brentford, I think, have gone through that step, right? They had the momentum of last season staying up. Yeah. And now they're able to make smart decisions to then keep that trajectory upwards. And I think, you know, if you look at the underlying numbers, Fulham, Fulham are running a little bit hot at the moment. But the other two, both Brentford and Brighton, are well worth pretty much their positions in, in the top half of the table. And I think that's the big, that's the big trick. It's, like, it's all well and good to come up as a promoted side and have a good season where you stay up once. Like you say, Leeds did that. But it's always that next step. It's like the following season, I think, is the, the second season syndrome, as they call it, is a real thing. Well, then, like, Crystal Palace are not one of these teams. They've been there for a while now, but they're kind of just trapped in that lower half of the table section. And there's nothing really to stop them. They, have, they don't have a lot of money, but they could sign players like Mitama and any of these lads that come through and develop them the same way the Brighton have done, but they haven't done it because they must have a different model. And that's why maybe the, the promotion like, arc of going constantly up benefits those teams who can do it, whereas Palace are just turned into survival mode because that's what happened to them. Like Southampton now, uh, they, when they came up, it seemed quite, quite smart business the way they did everything. And they had Hasenhuttle, well, they had Pochettino in charge and they had Koeman, all these guys. Then Hasenhuttle with a very clear style of play uh, signing players for it and that's all changed the ownership's changed now they aren't doing things in a very smart way and like we talked about Leeds earlier but there's now noise that like Jesse Marsh might get approached to Southampton and then Leeds might then take Ralph Hasenhuttle for things that aren't very smart and guided so maybe these clubs are getting to a point where they do well and then they show true colours and start to panic and hire people. Yeah, whereas- you get trapped, don't you? That's the problem. I think it's worth saying that both Southampton and Leeds are teams who thought that they had a smart approach, right? They both had approaches that they implemented and they, they built their whole philosophy around that. And for Leeds, the Red Bull style didn't work this season. And so they've gone from that being a sort of fairly coherent approach on paper, bringing in players to suit that approach, to now bringing in a manager who isn't going to fit that approach and then probably then getting trapped in a cycle of, well, we have to stay up this season. So you bring in a coach. If he stays, keeps them up, then you keep him on for the next season and then probably sack him around Christmas again. You get into that cycle. Southampton, the same. They, they started the season off you know, looting the, the Man City Academy players because they had a, one of the academy, the heads of academy moved to Southampton. They brought in a load of players and their big big model was going to be we'll buy these players undervalued when they're in the City Academy and then they'll, they'll you know, they'll, they'll work out and we'll make value there. Hasn't worked out. Now they look like they're in the same situation, right? Where they're jumping ship into a completely different style of playing football. And I think that's the danger, right? You As soon as your coherent philosophy doesn't work anymore, how do you then develop a new philosophy or do you just end up then panicking and being like we have to stay in the Premier League because it's so financially viable for us to be here that there's if we go down we're going to be in a huge amount of problem I think that's where Fulham have really succeeded if you compare Fulham and Southampton that's quite interesting as a contrast because Fulham clearly recognised right we need guaranteed production from a few positions. So you would go out, you sign Bern Leno, international caliber goalkeeper, played at the very highest level at the, at the top of the Premier League before with Arsenal. You go and sign Jao Polinho for a lot of money, but he's played in the Champions League, Portuguese international. You go and sign William, who was a little bit of a gamble, and I think his level of performance has surprised most people because he seems to have like got 10 years younger in the squad for summer. 
at Southampton, you look at the major transfer business. So John's mentioned kind of some of the, the players snagged from the City Academy, like um, Lavia came in and he looks like he's going to be a great, great player at some point in his career. Obviously, Gavin Bazunu, goalkeeper, good player, but like doesn't make you necessarily feel quite as secure as Bernd Leno, just, just on, a, on, a, on a, an experience basis. And then another major signing is Bella Ketchup, who um, barely got 50 like senior appearances to his name. That is an almighty gamble. And it's fine as long as it's kind of pegged around players who give you a little bit of security. That's that's how I would feel. You as can a add fan. about three new ones. You can't have a whole team of them. Probably. Well, you just need to have like players who who like if you, if you're a young player going through an eight nine month Premier League season, it's inevitable that you're going to have good and bad moments. Not just on the pitch. Like personally, it's going to be difficult. Like you're going to struggle. How do you deal with that? You can't know with a young player. Like you can't know with someone like uh, Romeo Lavia. Like you've never played senior football before and you have all the talent in the world and you can see him one day being worth like £100 million. Absolutely. Well, then how come Brighton do it, huh? Well, because I, I think Brighton, like, without knowing enough about Brighton's scouting model to really understand it properly, Brighton seem to pay attention to personality too. Like, it's buying a player, like, and this comes up and it's going to continue to come up, like, why doesn't my club just sign Matome? Like, why do we then have to go and, and, and sign for Brighton for a 500% markup? Because when you buy a player it's important like what you're putting him into like for instance you don't sign someone from the championship and put him and ask him to anchor the real madrid midfield he may be good enough at one one day to do it but he's got to grow into the game like there are a couple of players that might might prove to be an exception to that rule but i think it's generally fair like knowing when to sign a player is probably just as important as knowing which player to sign and I think Brighton have nailed that. Now, um, someone far smarter than me will be able to explain why that is or what the details of them, of their their, their scouting model and, and um, procedure are. Well, I would, but we don't have much time. Yeah, we don't have smarter <laughs> people like on hand. If there was someone in the in the in the booth who could just walk in. Oh no, I was saying I I can do that. Bit. Oh, you can do that bit. Yeah. You're okay, hosting though, so I'm hosting. I can't. Yeah. Well, you could do if there's you were truly wall, smart enough to do it. There's then, a wall. I can't. And mm, Joe would opinion. do it. Joe would just start talking. Money can buy many things, mm. like love. Oh no, you can't buy love. <laughs> Absolutely, the things it can't buy. Not. Yeah, that is, um, that's that's the thing that everybody knows. Do you know another thing it can't buy? Even though you wouldn't, it's not for sale. I'm trying to segue into a thing about VAR chatting. Um, yeah. Accuracy, uh, lack of human error. Yeah. I mean, so, like, refereeing decisions are really boring. <laughs> making mistakes yeah. on podcasts. I, uh, tell me if you can, loyal viewer or listener, tell me if you can work out what team the producer supports when I read this <laughs> sentence. Over the weekend, VR officials did not draw the lines used to check for offside and Brentford's equaliser against Arsenal. <laughs> section on VAR. You've nailed Hankles with that impression. That is absolutely spot oh, on. Yeah. I mean, it is relevant. I did, like I said earlier, I think Brentford were genuinely really good. It should have been about two up by the time this they were. happened. And also, it's. They were. I can, you know, there's no excuse for it. It is pretty. It's quite but bad. I, I, so, I was in Germany the other weekend, obviously, and like, so I, I'm not subject to the, the blackouts. So I was able to watch the game live. And I. I, I He's I, referring to the TV blackout. We're not. In there some sort of like, new war. <laughs> Even though there are UFOs being shut down. Like, you never know. It's coming. Um, but I said in the WhatsApp group, like, that is just, like, I love Arsenal misfortune as much as anybody. I'm a Tottenham fan. That's I'm entitled to it. This was scandalous because it shouldn't need the line to see it. It's it's a ridiculous mistake to make because I I said, and John and I were having a conversation about it, like, there's just, I, I don't, unless I've missed something in the play, there's just no justification for it. it it's, I, 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 I appreciate Howard Webb so Hadweb is the head of the PGA MOL now. Um, and he, Pogmol. Pogmol. I think we it, should call them Pogmol more. Pogmol. Pogmol. Previously, when, when mistakes got made, Pogmol would just ignore them and hope that nobody noticed. Or they, I don't know, like 
they, they would alter a rule or an interpretation and kind of yeah, fudge yeah. the issue. Howard Webb has promised to be a bit more transparent. And so far, he's been good to his word. He's contacted Arsenal. I think he also contacted Brighton to explain the mistake that got made in the Crystal Palace game, the Estepanen goal that was incorrectly ruled out. I just, I just don't understand how the, the Arsenal mistake gets made, though, because it's, it's so obvious. You don't need a line to see that the, uh, to see the offside. It's because um, they're all against them. That's why they're all against them. Everything you think with that hat on, you've got. That's what they're doing. They're Brentford trying to stop really Arsenal from winning it on purpose. You are right. Brentford were excellent, but it's, it's kind of not the point. Like it's. The goals still have to be. Do you know yeah. what I really don't like? Obviously, this, this, this the only bit I don't like about VAR, right? Is the offside stuff. Mm. So you can't determine someone being slightly offside because you're at different positions where you're running. And if you're getting ahead of someone, it means you're actually playing better than them because you're anticipating something that you're getting ahead of. So if you've got like a tiny shoulder ahead, I think it just means that you're leaning in a certain way that is conducive to doing the thing correctly as opposed to your opponent who you're beating in the offside trap. So that's the bit that shouldn't be there. The bit with the human error is. It's so <laughs> I don't silly. Know. It's so silly. Yeah, but there's, every week in Scotland now, people are appealing VAR red cards, and they're all wrong. What happened to that um, American boy who plays for Rangers? American boy. The American, there was um, no. He still play for them. Um, there was a, there was a massive fight in the Rangers against somebody game. Did you mean this weekend, Party yeah. Thistle? Yeah, maybe. Uh, something happened where they scored a goal. I mean, I took him about Scott Arfield. Like. No, Tillman. No, no, Tillman. That's Tillman. Tillman. Is he American? Yeah, he's Amer- He's on loan yeah. from Bayern Munich. I want to say. Sure. Well, as mentioned, <laughs> would improve communication from officials' help. Should they do like um, I watched a bit of the Super Bowl yesterday, and yeah. the referee says things, and you hear them on TV. I quite like that. Yeah, they do that in the, in the NRL too. Quite like that. Do you want my take on VAR? Not really. No, I mean, no, sure. you, you, you kind of, yes, do it yeah. in two minutes or two less. Minutes. Yeah. So, refereeing. I think the reason why people hate VAR is because they they the, fear the, change. It's not just that. I think it's that there's been an exp- that there is now an expectation that refereeing has just has always only ever been about getting things right, right, making correct decisions. But I don't think that's actually what refereeing has ever been about. Refereeing has been when you have two teams playing against each other, you need someone who's an arbitrary, an independent arbiter, right, who who is going to judge both of those teams with to the best of their ability and because of that the game can go ahead if you don't have a referee you can't have a game because the teams are just going to disagree with with each other on on the ruling right that's what refereeing's always been var comes in and people think var is just some kind of technological overlord who looks at everything and is never wrong about anything but all of var var stands for video assistant referee it's another person who is watching the game on a video able to slow it down and take a look at things again and he helps or she helps out the referee in making those decisions and um I think the problem is is that people think now that because of VAR, there shouldn't ever be mistakes. That's how it was sold to people, though, John. Like, it, I, I, I agree with you. It's just that's how it was sold. That, that was its kind of, that was its selling point to, to the game. It's not correct, but that's how it was presented. Yeah, and but I, I think that is... I, I agree. Fingers in how everyone looks at things now. What people need to remember is that, that VAR is going to make mistakes too. Now, I think in this instance, it's slightly different because those mistakes are egregious, right? And whenever a referee makes mistakes, you have to go back and say, these were mistakes. We need to try and work at, at not making them again in the future. But I think that the, the problem is now is that people are now so allergic to the idea of any mistake being made that they've forgotten that actually the, the reason why these officials exist is to allow the games to, to take place smoothly and, and then you, you've kind of first like you, what, what's happened there though is like you've taken away the justification for a mistake being made in the first place yeah. so you said right well the game's quick and I can kind of understand it if a player's offside by that much that's about I don't know we're doing video <laughs> so it's like five centimeters um, but now like you have a situation right the Arsenal offside is the contemporary equivalent of 
I don't know, a linesman leaving his flag or her flag in the dressing room and be like, well, it's offside, but what am I going to do? Like, I won't put my hand up. I can't do anything. Like, it's just, it's, it's a ridiculous mistake. But it's, 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 it's tight enough. I mean, I think it's the funny one for the weekend. I think it's tight enough. I think it's tight enough. I think it's When you're watching it in full speed, right, that's the kind of goal. This is my point, right? If you watch that full speed before VAR, there yeah. was every chance that goal would have stood anyway because they wouldn't have thought it was offside. And that's what would happen. So the idea is that VAR should be able to make that fairer and uh, that's what should happen. And they should probably have seen it when they slow it down to the meticulous way they do it, but it's fine. There's a the Chelsea goal. So the West Ham yeah. scored... Uh, uh, what was it? Sotek dived, Sotek. saved a penalty. <laughs> no. yeah, oh my God, what am I saying? <laughs> they had a shot from outside the box. Sotek basically dived like a goalie, saved it with yeah. his arm and it's clearly a penalty. And what's interesting is then it's a difference of opinion between referees and uh, VARs and everyone else. And then people say, oh, you should get people who played the game because then they would understand they don't know anything about football. That's See, I, I don't really buy into that argument because I don't think it's a, def- like, I don't think having played or not having played the game is, is really an excuse for getting that wrong. I think it's a, like, I think there's a certain type of referee in the Premier League now where the tendency is to, regardless of what's happening, is to do nothing. And then if VAR then needs to intervene, then it intervenes. But at the same time, it has to intervene over its high bar. So what's probably happened there, and I'm, I'm completely guessing, is that I, the Sujic handball has happened. And the law around this now is if the hand is struck, but the, the, the hand belongs to a player who's kind of um, supporting their fall or their body position, that's not handball. Like it was that one that happened against or for Portugal in the World Cup against Uruguay. Um, when the guy was falling back, it hit them on the hand, it was given and it shouldn't have been and we talked about mm. it on the live show. It's the same thing. That is clearly not what's happened in this instance to anybody looking at it. But because, like, I forget who the referee was, I think it was Craig Porson, has probably had a conversation with the VAR and said, what I've seen is this, blocking's full. And the VAR has said, yeah, close enough, that's probably what happened. And then it goes on and that's how that happens. So it's a mess. But it, then this is what it goes back to. Like, as soon as you take away the idea that as John alluded to, mistakes are acceptable, then you get this. And this is what was sold to people. It's like, you're going to get these decisions right, so we will tolerate all the nonsense that goes with it. The long checks, the stops in the game, like the the kind of the breaks in emotion, the kind of the pauses after a goal is scored. And the payoff for that is, right, faultless system. It never should have been sold like that because it's ridiculous, but that is still what happened, and that's what the, frustrates The people. rules were developed so that people could make yeah. the best decisions in yeah. the moment. The best they could. And, and yeah. as, re- as a result, the rules are like incredibly broad on certain things. So the whole thing becomes interpretational. Yeah. And the problem is, is when you slow everything down now, we have we, we just get these sort of legalistic debates being like, oh, well, was he putting his arm down to stop the ball? You get like was a he- nine-point thread on Twitter. The only way to solve on, this on is to create a sort of dystopian, Judge Dredd-style world aliens, <laughs> where the referee is literally a robot that can control things. And as long as it doesn't go rogue and start, you know, trying to like... <laughs> destroy everything in its path which as a most laws should prevent it from doing <laughs> but can you control the robots when they rise maybe they're coming maybe Will that's Smith what the ufos are all about that yeah more about this after the break <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Oh, we're back. Now we're going to talk about the Bundesliga. And my word said there's a chance Bayern Munich might win it this year. <laughs> Bayern Munich look quite competitive and they are still top. Yeah. But, wow. but importantly, Union Berlin went to RB Leipzig at the weekend during the, uh, the top spiel game and won. They were 1-0 down at half-time and they came back to win 2-1. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go and see Yannick Habada's uh, goal from outside the box. Absolutely brilliant hit. Um, and... Union from a, from a Freiburg second. player. Don't yeah, don't do that. Be. Don't do that. Don't do that. Helping you guys. Don't, yeah. don't. not you guys. Is I'm this, not a fan. Yeah, so are we trying come. to create this sort of uh, idea that there is some sort of title challenge on? You know, when I look at the goal difference of plus forty-one to Union Berlin's plus eleven. That just sounds like Rangers and Celtic in the Premiership. No, I, I don't. I don't think it's that. I think it's more that just before the World Cup, Union fell off a little bit and looked a little bit short of energy. They got absolutely battered by um, Leverkusen um, and Freiburg. And Freiburg. And so I think at that point, everyone said, right, it's done. It's been a nice story, but they're an autumn team. They've come back from the Winterpause and they've been excellent. They've been absolutely excellent. And they're playing Ajax in the Europa League on Thursday. And it's just a new height for the club to climb, uh, a new club for the club to have climbed to. And I think the point is not about winning the Bundesliga. It's just Union Berlin could be playing the Champions League next year. And that's an amazing story. Like if you think about where the club's come from and what the last sort of, I suppose, since they, they ascended into the Zweite Bundesliga, uh, which is uh, 13 years ago now, to where they are today, it's amazing, given the budgetary restraints and the stories. And um, it's a great book. Read uh, Kit Holden's book about Union Berlin if, you, if, you're, if you're interested. It's a tremendous bit of work by Kit um, and super interesting. It's called Scheiße, we're going up. Scheiße, we're going up. Yeah. Union Berlin, interesting, because we talked about them at the beginning of the season, yeah. saying their underlying numbers weren't great, mm -hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. But I think a really good example of like a situation where a team has a tactical approach, yeah. which almost belies its underlying numbers and, and justifies it being where it is. I think that's really fascinating, the fact that they've developed this sort of low, lower block, absorb pressure, mm -hmm. and then have really excellent transitional players who can score. In the Bundesliga as well, a league where... A lot of teams just haven't considered the possibility of actually defending. Um, and you've got a couple of teams now in, in Union and Freiburg now who are, I would say, largely defensively minded teams. Yeah. And as a result of that, they're able to get a much further up the league than they should be. I mean, neither of these teams has any right being anywhere near the top of this table in no. terms of, as you've said, the budgetary requirements and the fact that, you know, they, they, they simply you know operate in a sensible manner they sell players for for, for value they make money back and um, yeah that's selling players like the turnover i think the last three years um well since they got got to the bundesliga uh union have made a healthy profit in player trading also i think what's interesting about them is that like for all their defensive um ability they've got a known weakness which is in the transition you can exploit space behind their wing backs if you you, you spring it well enough if you create the right crossing triangle and yet they still don't concede many goals like they've got the second best defensive record in the bundesliga if you take away that um that blip for the world cup like the driving in leverkusen and the beating by freiburg they would have the best defense record in germany which is amazing it's an absolutely amazing thing and also they've just They're like the newcastle of germany yeah but without the 35 million pounds van botman right 
It's, uh, it's well, amazing. Well, here's one for you, Seb. I'll ask you a complicated question now that we're trying to sort of wrap up the podcast. <laughs> now, you live in Germany. I do. People might not know that he does. I do live in Germany. Uh, and uh, so when, when if Union Berlin get into Champions League, they get a bit of money from Champions League, that's good. Mm-hmm. They, can, they can spend some money on their players. But does it really matter long term? Because the gulf between them and Bayern Munich is huge anyway. And also, what are they really going to compete at when you compare to what the Premier League is doing? My question to you is, what is the German opinion on how the Premier League has just destroyed European football with all the money that's in it? I, I'm not sure of a consensus. What we'll say is that it actually doesn't come up that much. Like, that's interesting. I mean, I haven't assimilated. I've only been there a couple of years, so like, I'm not the person to ask. But I think German football is such a world apart from the Premier League that if, for instance, you would have this conversation with a, a Union Berlin fan and be like, well, you're not going to win a thing. They'd be like, I don't care. I'll go to Union because um, there's something about the way the club is run that speaks to me or, you know, it's something about the, the environment. I mean, that's a question for them. Oh, for sure. And that's why everyone supports different teams. I support Aberdeen. We're not going to win anything ever. What also? like, but It's I, more like the opinion of how it looks not the futility of it all but like whether there's some sort of growing uh, yeah, not, not it, mistrust towards the Premier League or something no well, like I, I think yeah, over time there might be some resentment but at the same time it doesn't impinge upon people's enjoyment like I occasionally I, I go to um, the Volkspark Stadium to watch um, Hamburg with my brother-in-law <laughs> 50,000 people go and watch Hamburg in the second division like there's no kind of in, if there's one club that kind of sums up futility and like how you're able to kind of trip over your own feet again and again it's it's Haas Foul right and yet it doesn't seem to make a difference. And so the idea of, well, we can't buy this player for £100 million, so what's the point? That's kind of how I feel about English football. German football is, to me, one of the reasons why I've got into it since I've been there is like partly exploration, but also because it is so different and it feels like a different world. Not different sport, but like there's so much to it that is not about the winning and losing. Mm. And maybe that's been born out of Bayern Munich's dominance and out of necessity. Maybe, maybe. Um, but also it just feels a little bit richer. Not necessarily all over because there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, uh, diverse fan cultures in England beneath the Premier League and some within it. But like as a as a kind of a, a complete entity, it just feels a little bit more interesting. And I think that probably compensates whatever like um, financial disadvantages it's at. But maybe someone else who's spent more time and knows the game better than I do would give a different answer. That's just how it seems. An interesting phenomenon that I've sort of picked up on is, uh, and again, this is probably not that representative because I know a lot of people in Germany do hate Bayern, but Mm -hmm. there is a weird sort of disconnect between fans in uh, fans of Bundesliga teams hating Bayern but then when it comes to the Champions League mm-hmm. backing Bayern a little bit because they almost know the only chance that, that they have really to see a German team succeed yeah. is with Bayern um, again I don't know how representative that is but I know a, a few I think fans who who would be sort of like Bayern in, in, in Europe but I think they would be for PSG like I think like in this game I mean it's kind of a weird thing to be you know to favour PSG over Bayern Munich regardless of what sort of resentment they breed in Germany I don't know like maybe it's a little bit like the way everybody used to think in the 90s when like you'd only get I didn't have Sky when I was growing up so like the only time you really see live football is European football and so you'd sort of as a child you'd adopt the um the team that were on so I remember when Leeds won the Premier League before it became the Premier League and they were in Europe the next season. I remember sporting Leeds when they played those games against Rangers. And then when Rangers knocked them out, they'd be like, oh, you know, go on the British team afterwards. And like, obviously you wouldn't do that now because the game has changed. But like, I remember wanting Blackburn to do well when they're in the Champions League and Man United. And I remember kind of almost celebrating when Man United won their, their European Cup and, you know, their, their Cup Winners' Cup at the beginning of the decade. And like, I maybe it's a little bit like that. I don't know. 
Um, but it wouldn't be for the same reasons. It wouldn't be because of you know scarcity of TV coverage. But um, it's an interesting concept. It just feels like a different, like it feels like all the anger is directed at a different way. Like people are angry about things like RB Leipzig and the manipulation of fifty plus one, or they're angry about the governance of the game, or they're angry at their own the club World because Cup being in Qatar. Yeah, or they're angry at like you know Bayern Munich fans are angry at their own club because of their Qatar associations yeah. and like you know that's a really big pressure point and it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel the same and i don't know enough about german football really to kind of do a, do that justice but yeah it's different it's part of the reason why when i went to germany and watched freiburg play i got so into it because yeah. back back then freiburg weren't exactly great they were they were sort of they were a relegation avoiding team uh, perennially they're now much better than they were but like there's so much about that that aspect it's like it's not about we i think we've become a bit results pilled in the in the definitely. premier league right where it's definitely. all about who cares as long as you win or you lose whatever that like as long as you win you don't it's lose. a different sport to like yeah. sport so and yeah local whereas team, yeah. you go along I, I went to freiburg you go to the stadium you know the the stadium seats over well it's massive now it, it sta- seats over twenty five thousand people um the population of the sit of the city is two hundred thousand so one in ten people and people aren't traveling around from miles away to go and watch Freiburg because it's it's quite a secluded area so you end up with like the like one in ten people probably being in the stadium on the weekend that means that everyone in the city knows someone who will have gone to the stadium and 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 it becomes like a it becomes a collective and commu- communal thing where people you you stay in the city for the week and people are interested in the football team they they hear that you're going and they're like oh they they know the stories they know the players a lot of the players have have gone up through the youth system so they are local kids the manager is a local guy as well and it just feels a, a lot more collective after the before the game you sit you sit around everyone's drinking beer you can take the beer into the stands after the games the, the players go over to the ultras the ultras pick a man of the match and they that player goes up into the stand and they megaphone like sing a song they have to sing a song and stuff and and it feels like there's it's it feels a lot more like uh, uh, there's a lot more overlay between the team the club and the and the, and the place where it, where it's based and then at the end of the game it, all of the players just walk through the crowds to get to their car and drive off it it it, it feels a lot less hygienic than than premier league it's getting me the, hyped the, up the fan the fan feels, get amped it still feels like a stakeholder right because the, the fan is literally a stakeholder still in german football yeah and also, like, one of the things I've noticed in the few games that I've been able to go to as a fan is that, like, as a visiting media person, like, is that, like, when you go to football in England, you feel like you're doing something wrong, right? Because of the atmosphere and the policing and the kind of the, the general constraints on your behavior. It's like someone's waiting for you to do something wrong. And I feel like that's quite pervasive. In German football... <laughs> that's actually true, yeah. But yeah, but in, in German football, like, if you go, it feels... I, I don't know if this is representative, but to me, on those occasions, always felt like it's a day out and people are just having fun and they're enjoying things and they want the team to win, but it's about other stuff too. And there's a diversity to it. Like back in the autumn, I went to I went to the Revier Derby, which is Dortmund against Schalke. I went to the West, Westfalen Stadium and that is just, just this temple of football. It's incredible. The day after, I went to see Union Berlin beat Wolfsburg. Two very contrasting experiences. Union Stadium holds 22,000 people, so it's very, very small in comparison to the Westfalen Stadium. And yet there's a charm everywhere. There's something to be seduced by in every environment and exactly what John's just described about Freiburg. And wherever you go, you can find something, I think. And that's um, and that might be because I'm new to the country, so that's a, a, a disclaimer. But that is 
definitely a selling point. It's definitely something which people, I, I well, understand why people gravitate towards. I think that's a lovely way to end the entire podcast. Isn't that nice? John got me amped up. Seb brought me down a little bit again, <laughs> yeah. as he is wont to do. Yeah, just, but it was nice. I, I think We have to keep you on a leash. You, if you're too excited, you're a pain. Only up or down, yeah. no middle. Yeah. I think that's a good way to end it. So let's end it there. Thanks very much for, for being in the studio, Seb Stafford Bloor. Very welcome, JJ Bull. Thanks to you, John McKenzie. Mm, it's lovely having Seb here, isn't it? It is nice. IRL. Yeah. Nice. Thanks to producer Steve Hankey. You're welcome. And his production. And of course, producer Jamie, who uh, is producing the video that you could watch. Maybe you are watching the video, because much like quantum particle physics. <laughs> <laughs> the video is very different to the you audio. Can, the video exists, as does the audio. Which is true? Which is the reality? <laughs> you choose. Goodbye. <laughs> Super Cup and finished second in the league. And we played 14 games and more than Real Madrid did. Capello was at um, Real Madrid. He won the league by two points. He won it by one, one game. And we played that year 14 games more than they did right. that season. Because we went all the way to the European Cup Winners' Cup. Yeah. They didn't even play in Europe that year. We right. did. And we won it. So we played all those matches. I lost my job. That was the unmistakable voice of Sir Bobby Robson, talking to me, George Culkin, during the months and years before he died. Thanks to the generosity of his family, The Athletic are marking what would have been Sir Bobby's 90th birthday this weekend with Bobby 90, an exclusive four-part podcast series featuring previously unheard interviews with one of football's most iconic figures. It's packed with stories about growing up in the North East, managing Newcastle United, Barcelona, England as well as players like Gaza, Brian Robson and Alan Shearer. And it details his repeated bouts with cancer, establishing the charitable foundation which carries his name. It's Bobby at his charismatic and emotional best. Listen to Bobby 90 for free by searching for Paul on the Tyne on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all usual podcast providers.